This is episode five in our series called Summer Blockbusters, where we were looking at big events and big stories, our big God. And so we have been telling stories. I love to tell stories. I love to listen to stories. And when we relive these stories, we're able to see God at work. That's the point of these stories. That's what we're looking for, to see God at work. Not just points, not just principles, not five reasons to do this and three reasons to do that, but what's God like in action? How does He respond? How does He treat His servants? What did He do in actual historical recorded events? So today, in this episode, we are going to take aim and do some killing. We're going to take aim at that thing in us that has the potential to kill us and everything good around us. This episode today is all about pride. Not the pride that makes us proud of our kids and their accomplishments. Not the uh, pride that we have in our sports team, our hockey team, and hoping that they'll do something. Uh, this is the inspirational pride um, that, that, that's about grace, uh, greatness. We're talking about the pride that becomes a prison, and a, that prison that shuts you in and shuts God out and shuts others out. So today we're looking at 3P people out there in the world today. So you're saying, Graham, please, could you tell me what are those 3Ps of which you have spoken. And I'm so glad that you asked. I'll fill that in for you. 3P people. These are the 3Ps right here. Power, prestige, possessions. A measure of power, a measure of prestige, and yeah, you've got some stuff. And honestly, more stuff probably than the average person. Even extra stuff. If you are a 3P person, you have a unique issue when it comes to pride. Denying that you're a 3P person is not about humility, it's actually about deception or dishonesty. If you deny that you're a 3P person, it actually sets you up to misuse the stuff that you've got, to misuse all of the 3Ps actually. So you know what? Let me start by being honest. I am a 3P person. I have a measure of power over my life and you know, some of my circumstances. I have a measure of prestige. I am recognized for certain things in certain places. I have a measure of possessions. I've been blessed. I have more than so many people. So I'm set to be gobbled up by my pride. So I need to pay attention in life, and I better listen to the preacher today. Now, if you are unsure about whether or not you are a 3P person, let me give you some information to help you sort it out. There are over 3 billion people in the world who, if they were to drop into your life right now, they would swear you are a 3P person. Those are the people in our world right now who are living on $2.25 a day. Two twenty-five. You might say, hold on a second, come on, I really don't have much power, all right? And these are the people that would look at you and say, are you kidding? You have so many choices that you make every single day. Every single day, I will never have the opportunity to make those choices. I don't have that much prestige. You go, for real? You are a Canadian. You are living in one of the most desirable countries in the world. 
We were ranked again as the number one country in the world for so many things. Of course we're not perfect. Maybe so. But there's no, there's no way that any of you could call me rich. You know, I'm barely getting by. I don't have a lot of stuff. And I know that because there's an awful lot of stuff out there that I want that I don't have. If you were to be transported, just teleported, say, uh, into their world, and, and you were told, okay, uh, here, I want you to make your argument for why you're not a 3P person. Make it now. I mean, you'd, you'd just be embarrassed, right? Somewhere in the world, there's a whole mess of people, billions of people who would trade their life for yours in a heartbeat. You have an enviable life and lifestyle. So here's the quick summary so far. I am, you are, we are together, 3P people. We are set up in some circumstance for pride to grab the remote control of our life and shut us in and shut God and others out. Today, I'm going to tell you what I think is a fascinating story. I love this story. It really happened, and it was recorded in a number of different historical texts. One of them is the Bible. I will tell you up front, today is a participation Sunday, so I am expecting a little talking in church today, not just me. You're going to be like the Greek chorus in a Greek play. Now, I don't know if you can remember that. Um, it goes back a couple of years for some of you, but the chorus kind of acts, um, they, they respond to the onstage action. So, the story is about a guy uh, with a great name, strangely not that popular with new parents for a while now. Uh, it's important to also note that while his name appears in the Bible, it appears in many other ancient historical documents also. So, it's not just a Bible name, not just the kind that you know you fear as you're uh, reading along out loud and you see one of those coming. It's not just like that. Real guy, real name. Maybe it would be easier if we called him Chad, but we don't because his name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the king of Babylon. We're going to jump in at about 605 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar sent his army to Jerusalem, destroyed the, the, the city, and conquered the southern half of the kingdom of Israel. It's important to note by this time there, uh, that there was two kingdoms of Israel. There was in the north they called it Israel. In the south they actually called it Judah. So he uh, liberated many things of value from that region. One of the things that they took were the best and the brightest young men. Nebuchadnezzar was smart. He was one of the best ancient rulers because he knew his business. From wherever the armies might go, and from whomever they overpowered, the Babylonians would collect, search out, um, drag with them the best and the brightest young minds and bring them back to Babylon. They, there they would teach them to walk like a Babylonian, right? Not as good a song as the other one, uh, but he would teach them to talk and live like Babylonians, and they were given status, even though they had been picked up, carried off from their homes. And when they were suitably trained, they were incorporated into the palace court as wise men, as guards, as leaders, or as professional thinkers. He's surrounded by all these different people and different ethnicities, and he had the value of the wisdom of the nations to aid him, to guide his rule. So, 
When in Jerusalem, he carted off at least four very famous people, Daniel and the other guys that we always only ever hear about together. They traveled together as a group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego if you want to mess with your brain. Uh, So they all get moving. They're all back to Babylon, and things are moving along. Time passes, okay? Then one day, the king has a dream, and it unsettles him. So, he says, let's call in that high-priced international think tank, those interpreters of dreams, the wise men, the magicians, and get them to work on this. So he calls him and he says, I had this wild dream. Blows my mind. And I need some help with it, okay? So I want you guys to tell me what it means. But because this is a really big deal to me, and because sometimes I think you guys just make stuff up, I want to know that you really are connected to the gods like you say you are. So if you're really any good at this, you will tell me the meaning of my dream. And you will also tell me the dream itself. And all the wise guys, they go, no, 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 no. They start to bring out the terms and conditions of the agreement saying, you know what? Uh, This is not in my contract, all right? We're going to need to renegotiate some more reasonable terms if you're going to start with these large new demands on us. This is unreasonable because only the gods could reveal the dream you had to someone else. Mark that down. Remember that part? You must have to tell us at least the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar hears their complaints, hears their excuses, and is preparing his own counteroffer, his new settlement, which is to kill them all when something happens. Daniel shows up, and he speaks up. Time out for just a second, he says. Give me a day, and I'll be back. And when I come back, I'll tell you your dream and what it's all about. And sure enough, This little kidnapped Jewish kid taken to Babylon tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream and what it means. The king loses his mind. He goes, this is awesome. And from now on, everybody, from now on, we are all going to worship the the Jewish God, the, the, the God that Daniel works for because this was just outstanding. Daniel's God is the God of gods. A few years go by. Like most people, Nebuchadnezzar forgets his lesson. He decides that everyone is going to bow down and worship this giant idol of me. And we're all going to bow down together and swear ultimate allegiance to me. So there it is, out on the plains of Dura, outside the city of Babylon. He says everybody's going to bow down. Daniel's off on vacation or on a trip or doing something. We don't know where Daniel is at this point. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the city, and they send a message to the king, and they let it be known clearly, we are not going to bow down to your idol. Obviously, this doesn't go over well. So there's this giant furnace that is made. It needs to get heated up to show these guys who's boss, right? You remember this part of the story? Three guys get thrown in there, but they won't burn. Amazing story. Love that story too. There's another in the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar says, bring him out. Okay, everybody, new rule. Whoever they worship, 
we worship, okay? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the God we want. And he's thinking to himself, man, I feel like I've said that before, something like this. There was this lesson, and I maybe it's all just a little bit hazy. Maybe this is just a deja vu. I don't know what's going on. So Nebuchadnezzar has this on-again, off-again relationship, faith with God. Sometimes it's there for a bit, and then it just seems to fade away. Can anyone else relate to that? But when you're the king of the world, you're surrounded by sycophants. These are people who are, are there to constantly tell you that you are the greatest. You're the one. No, no, seriously, you're right there wrong. You're the man. No, no, strike that. You are like a god. So about 25 years after that, so now we're in about 580 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Here's how the story starts. It's kind of like we're jumping right into his journal with him. Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Five, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was, as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. In his dream, he envisioned a giant tree. It was so large that everyone in the world could see it. And there was a voice in the dream that said, cut it down. The tree is cut down. And all that's left is a stump. And after the tree is cut down in his dream, he hears a voice. Perhaps they are angels. Verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that. And now this is your part, okay? This is where I need you to come in. I want to give you a little bit of a cue so you know that it's coming so you can see where this is going to happen. Don't want you to be caught off guard. This is your part here. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, in church on Main Street, you guys did a great job. I didn't hear a single thing coming from church online, though, so let's try that again. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. He tells the dream to Daniel, and Daniel's face goes white. Nebuchadnezzar says, what's wrong? Tell me. D Daniel can't even speak. Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, come on, tell me, what does it mean? It can't be that bad. I I've had to deal with hard stuff before. I'm used to this. I'm a warrior. For pity's sake, Daniel, I'm the greatest king of the world. I am Nebuchadnezzar. I am the king. How bad can it be? Let me know. What is it? Daniel says, if only this dream was about your enemies, but it's about you. You are the tree in the dream. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against the Lord my King. 25, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar's listening and he goes, oh, metaphor. 
metaphorically, right? Uh, and Daniel says, no. Actually, for real, and for you. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that together. Here we are, your line again. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. This will be your lot in life, Nebuchadnezzar, until you realize once and for all, and don't forget it this time, that you are a king, but you are not the king. Seven times will pass by. The story continues, verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That phrase only appears one time in the whole Bible. When you acknowledge, O king, that heaven rules, then Daniel begs Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin, and specifically he begs the king to repent of his improper attitude and his improper pride, his improper treatment of the poor people, because the law of God said a king must be a just king. The greatest opportunity is, uh, for a king to be just is toward those who have no one to defend them, the poor. Now, when you went to school uh, way back when, uh, for some of you, maybe even five years ago, uh, some of you should remember this so well. We all studied it somewhere. You've heard of it, the Code of Hammurabi. It's actually very, very famous Babylonian law, and it predated King Nebuchadnezzar by about 1,100 years. Even in the Code of Hammurabi, the Babylonian law, it demanded that the king be the protector of the poor and the widows and the orphans. So Daniel says to the most powerful person on the planet, you must repent of your sin. You must repent of your injustice. And if you do, perhaps, maybe, God will relent, and perhaps, maybe, this horrible thing that you have dreamed about will not come to pass. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 30, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And if this was a movie, and we were all in the crowd right there, this is where the point in the crowd where we're all staring at the screen and we're all saying, no, don't do it. Why would you say that? Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You are a king, not the king. You can receive decrees as well. If your royal authority can be taken from you, then someone gave it to you. It was a stewardship. It was temporary. And, oh, king, you are accountable. 32, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you 
until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. 33. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So that sounds a little freaky, right? But there's actually a mental condition called boanthropy. A person in a delusional state believes himself or herself to become an ox or a cow and attempts to live and behave accordingly. And that came from Wikipedia, all right? So this is serious business, right? This is a thing. Check it out. You can look it up yourself. It was prophesied that it would only last for a time or seven times. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His domain is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and all those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What an amazing story. The most powerful man on the planet is humbled by the King of kings because heaven rules. But wait, there's still more. Forty years goes by. King Nebuchadnezzar dies. Babylonian influence in that part of the world begins to wane, and the new big dog on the block is the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. Now, the Babylonian kingdom is ruled by two men, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar on his daughter's side, Belshazzar, and Belshazzar's dad. They're co-regents, okay? Belshazzar was ruling in the city of Babylon, and Nabonidus, his father, who was King Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, figure out the tree here, is also a leader, but he's the leader of the army, okay? He's at war with the Persians. Nabonidus not doing so well, though. He is defeated time after time after time, and he eventually surrenders the army, flees to the hills, and the Persian army now moves to surround Babylon, the city. So Belshazzar, in the city, has no idea what happened to Nabonidus. He's in the city of Babylon, which is now surrounded by the mighty Persian army. Cyrus the Great has come for the city. But Belshazzar believed that the city was impregnable. He thought that no one would ever be able to go over the walls, through the walls, or under the walls. Knowing that the city is now surrounded and cut off from any help, 
by Cyrus the Great and the Persian army, Belshazzar arrogantly decides, let's throw a banquet. So he throws a party, and he dedicates it to Marduk. Marduk was the Babylonian god. But wait, there's still more, okay? Nebuchadnezzar had himself a god collection. And uh, anytime he conquered a city or a nation, he would take the idol that represented the god of the city or the nation and bring it back to Babylon, and he put it in his defeated god's collection. And he had been a very powerful and a very successful king. And so he had many idols from so many different places, all now hanging out in his castle. So at this party, Belshazzar brings out the statue of Marduk, sets it in the middle of the banquet hall, and then he has the rest of his people bring out all these other statues and idols that represent all of the other gods of the conquered people. And they place them around Marduk in kind of a semicircle as a reflection of the fact that our god Marduk can protect us from any nation, from any city. The challenge was this. King Nebuchadnezzar, many, many, many years before, had gone into the city of Jerusalem, and they had strolled right on up to the temple where the Jews worshipped the representation of the Jewish God. But what did they find? No idol. Because the Jews didn't worship an idol. The Ten Commandments forbid the Jews from worshipping any image Remember, this came up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We will not bow down to the idol. Happened to Daniel too, because Daniel refused to pray to anyone except Jehovah. They sent him to the lion's den for that one. The Jews had no statues, no images of their God. And no one in that time could figure that out. It's just unheard of. They worshiped the invisible God. So the Babylonians did the next best thing. How to make do when stealing from another nation, okay? They stole what they could. They went to the temple and they looked for the stuff that was in the temple and they decided that this is a reflection of the fact that they had conquered the nation and defeated that Jewish God. So they took that God's stuff and they put all that stolen stuff in the collection of conquered gods. So when Belshazzar has his banquet just to revel in the fact that he's a king, and that no one can take his city, he now brings out the gold and the silver goblets that had been stolen from the Jewish temple as a symbol of the fact that the Jewish God is now out of business. And he begins to use those goblets in his party. And right in the middle of this party, imagine this, okay, in the middle of this giant world famous city, surrounded by these awesome and powerful, never-been-breached walls. No one can get over, no one can get through, and no one can get under. Belshazzar, in his arrogance, is throwing this giant party, spitting in the face of all those Persians who are outside and of all those conquered nations. Suddenly, there is a noise, and they look around. And they see that the plaster has fallen off the wall. And as they pay closer attention, it's as if a finger is writing letters in the plaster on the wall. The music stops. The party stops. All the drinks go down. All eyes are on this wall. They're watching. 
Belshazzar so afraid that his knees give away. And he calls for all of his magicians because nobody could read what was being written on the plaster, in the plaster on the wall. And all these magicians, they roll in, and he offers them all kinds of things. You all make you the third person in power of the entire kingdom. And all the magicians stared at the writing. No one could read it. Then Belshazzar's wife, that's Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, granddaughter, sorry, remembered Daniel. She sends for Daniel. Daniel, by this time, is probably in his 70s. He's spent his entire life, from the time that he was a teenager until he's 70 years old, working for the kings of Babylon. He looks up at the wall, and he looks at Belshazzar in all his arrogance, and now in all his fear. And here's what happens next. You know what? You should, you should really read your Bible, because this is all in there, okay? This stuff is unbelievable, awesome stuff, great stories. Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, actually, you know, technically your grandfather, but they use these terms interchangeably, gave him uh, Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Pause. Belshazzar, my God, the God, loaned your grandfather some of his greatness and his splendor. Verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory until he acknowledged that, your line again, the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Belshazzar, your grandfather, was a great king. And he grew so that he understood that his power was on loan from the, the king, of all kings. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. In other words, this story about Nebuchadnezzar wasn't secret. It had circulated. It was common knowledge. Once he came back to his senses, once he regained this, the opportunity to reign in Babylon, he told his story. This was a story that his children knew. This was a story that his grandchildren knew. You knew all this, Belshazzar, 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives, your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised these gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and stone which cannot see or hear or understand. So take a second just to picture Belshazzar has brought the statue of Marduk which is made of stone, some kind of stone, brought it to the center of the banquet hall. And Daniel is standing there also kind of in the center. And there are all these statues 
all of these idols, all of these gods from all the other vanquished nations. And he's pointing out the gods as he goes along. He's pointing out to a silver one, and there's a gold one, and there's a bronze one. There's an iron one. Over there is a wood one. We got a stone one. You're acting like all of these gods are something, but they cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in His hand your life and all your ways. Verse 24, Therefore, He sent the hand that wrote that inscription. And you could have heard a pin drop. 25, This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Verse 26, here is what those words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. O King Belshazzar, your days are numbered. No matter how big in your britches you feel, remember this, your days are limited. Your days are controlled by someone outside of yourself. You are going to die. 27. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You are accountable. You have been weighed and you have been judged. You are being held to account. There is someone greater than you who will hold you accountable. Now you must give an account. 28. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar, your influence is temporary. But wait, there's still more. A week or so ago, a week or so before the uh, Persians surrounded the city, a week or so before Belshazzar threw his big party a week or so before Cyrus the Great had his army redirect the river Euphrates into a swamp. The river Euphrates ran right into the city of Babylon. It was where they got their water from. The river ran under the wall, and they built the wall on the river um, on two sides. The Persians redirected the river And for the past few days, the level of the river has been dropping. Cyrus timed it perfectly. That as the sun set, the Euphrates River began to dip below the lowest point in the walls of Babylon. And as they are having this party, and as Daniel is making this proclamation, the Persian army is slipping into Babylon. The city is taken that night, and that night Belshazzar was executed because the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone He wishes. And that means for us, 3P people in Canada, that every single day is a stewardship. No matter how much power no matter how much prestige, no matter how many possessions, it is a stewardship. That means that there are so many variables that you have no control over that we should never, ever, 
ever get all puffed up and arrogant over any of it. It has been placed in our hands. We are managing something that we did not create, and we will not hold on to it forever because it's all temporary. And maybe the most important one of all, the one that we are most likely to forget when all kinds of things start going on around us is that we are accountable. One day we will give an account of how well we managed our prestige and our power and our possessions. And do you know how we know that we are accountable? Because the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone He wishes. Application. As municipal and perhaps federal elections are anticipated and some are fast approaching and they are and will continue to be filled with controversy and unkindness, know that our King remains in control. You need not fear. Imagine the worst possible outcome in these elections. God can use you in this time to make a difference, just like He used Daniel. Daniel never wanted to be in Babylon at all. He never wanted to work for a king, and he certainly didn't want to work for multiple kings, but he was effective for the kingdom of God in the midst of it all. He knew his mission, and his mission was not about him getting everything that he wanted and living a safe and comfortable life. We report second to Canada and first to the kingdom of heaven because heaven rules. Here's what else this means to you. When and where you hold influence, when you rightly sense that you have got it going on, in that moment when your pride rises up and it starts to reach for that remote control for your life, you say, no way. Pride, you are wrong, and I know that you lie. This is a stewardship. This is temporary. I am accountable for the whole thing. Pride, were you even listening? Did you just miss the whole sermon, pride? Did you miss that key phrase that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone He wishes? No, I'm going to be grateful. But I'm not going to become arrogant. That's how and why for us as 3P people, we've got to keep our eyes up. Jesus first and everything else after. Let's stay on watch, paying attention to what's happening around us, and be all about helping each other kill that pride. Kind Father, thank you for a story that lives in history of uh, the way that you have interacted with folks. Thank you for the way that you continue to desire to be in partnership with us, putting us on mission to make a difference in this world. Find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.